So hello and welcome back to the Planet Economics podcast and it's a great pleasure that I get to bring in my guest today, uh, David Breer, who is the CEO and founder of 11FS. Since his dream of being a sportsperson was crushed, along with the ligaments in his knee, David had to get a proper job and has since worked in pretty much every angle of the financial services industry, never losing that competitive desire to drive forwards and win. It is whilst working in every angle of the financial services industry that David realised digital financial services are only 1% finished. And this spurred his desire to establish an organisation that can actually support the industry through its greatest challenge. And thus, 11FS is a challenger to the incumbent consultancies. They create innovative strategies and build out new propositions and ventures in the UK, US, Europe, and Asia for some of the biggest brands on the planet. In four years, 11FS has gone from a zero brand and zero revenues to a multi-million a month business with one of the hottest brands in fintech. And then in today's episode, David talks about the founding story behind 11FS, but then also we diverge onto the biggest trends in fintech, what the Califa review meant for fintech in London, and where the 99% of digital financial services is headed. Yeah, I just want to add on that. If you want to learn more about digital financial services and where they are headed, I really recommend you go check out the 11FF's website and also their YouTube channel. They released a documentary all about the revolution of fintech and how it unfolded talking to the CEO of Monzo, the CEO of Starling Back, and a load more. Furthermore, they also discuss they also discuss things like decoding banking as a service, where fintech is headed, and they do this through innovative and creative manners, through their Lightroom. It's really fascinating. Go check it out. Now, if you want to become an entrepreneur, you want to start a business, or you or you have an idea which you think can revolutionize the world, but you're unsure of how to get your business started, how to turn this idea into a reality, or even just the simplest procedural steps behind a business, then Different is the place for you. Different is a community of global creators and rebels. By joining the platform, you get access to forums to ask questions, find partners and get support. You get a free domain hosting and website builder, you get exclusive deals on the leading software tools from monday.com, Stripe, and Crowdcube. You get content help, original videos of experts telling business stories and tips. You get meeting rooms. You get a jobs board. It provides all the necessary things you need in order to get your business to the next level and help create something different. I have partnered with different so that I can provide this platform to my users at a cheaper fee. So if you look down in the description below, I've left my referral referral link, which gives you 50% off the different platform. And so for only £6 a month, you get access to all the premiums I just talked about. Now, so... uh. Thanks, David, for coming on and doing the podcast with me. No worries at all. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, fintech is a it's a really big uh, industry right now. We could go into all different tangents. I mean, you've done five hundred podcast uh, podcast episodes on your own podcast. So, um, but before we do that, I just want to learn a bit more about you and your story with Eleven uh, FS. So just. Tell us uh, a bit about the idea behind um, 11FS. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the story of 11FS starts way earlier than uh, than than just uh, when I, when I sort of started the company. But uh, I can kind of uh, I'll start there, and I can kind of work my way back as far as you want me to go. But uh, the company's uh, four and a half years old now. Over the last four and a half years, we've uh, built a really amazing community around financial services and really where the future of that is going. Um, in addition to that, we've built out challenger propositions for some of the biggest banks on the planet, some of the biggest startups on the planet in places like Hong Kong, the UK, 
Saudi, the US, uh, Singapore, and um, and it's it's a lot of fun. Like we really think the the impact of uh, of digital on financial services is really only scratching the surface in terms of all of the things that it can really do. Uh, and the, actually the impact that that can have from a societal perspective in terms of the the good that that can really sort of bring around. So um, what we've tried to do is bring about this change in the industry to not only aspire to be doing better things and serving customers in a better way, um, but actually just putting in the effort and making it happen. Like most of this is just is just putting in the work, really. So what were the main obstacles you faced, um, like setting up 11FS? Yeah, I mean, uh, first, uh, you know, leaving a well-paid, good job. I'd worked my entirety of my career to get at, I was running Gartner's global digital banking practice. Uh, probably the first thing to, to overcome was like my wife thinking I was sort of losing the plot and, uh, you know, uh, having some sort of weird midlife crisis breakdown moment. Uh, I'm going to go and take on multi-billion pound companies with, uh, we've got no brand, no money, no office, no clients, but yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this. So that first step, you know, that first leap into that abyss was um probably uh the weirdest conversation that i've i've kind of had i mean after that it's just momentum um i mean the the interesting thing when you're trying to start an organization most most companies kind of go uh you know run through the leagues you know it's about you know little league and you might win some great projects and build up and da -da. like but actually from the get-go you know myself simon uh jason and ross the other founders of the business uh, we weren't really setting out to do something that was small. It was all about being in a situation where we we built a company that would challenge the biggest organizations in the planet doing the thing that we do. Uh, you know, the McKinsey's, the Accenture's, the the Bain's of the world. Uh, how do we compete with those guys and win? Um, because when you're five people, it's it's hard to see that. But actually, you do it in exactly the way that we're describing. And, and this is really why... I think we carry so much credibility into the meetings talking to a, a board of a bank or a CEO of a bank is is actually what they want to achieve is what we have achieved. You know, actually being able to bring about real change and being able to motivate small teams of people to do amazing things far more than, you know, other people are able to achieve or uh, with far little, uh, much less resources than, than other setups as well. You know, it's uh, being able to do that has been really the biggest challenge. But I kind of come back to like the the premise for 11FS was was way earlier than that. Like my my background, uh, I've told this story a couple of times on on various different podcasts. But my background was is more sports than it is business. In all honesty, like I was playing all sorts of sports, doing uh, you know county this and county that, and uh, uh, you know doing uh, in as an undergrad, um, in fact, actually at A-level doing sports science and human biology. Um, and then sadly, you know, one bad uh, twist and three ligaments in my left knee later, um, I had to really rethink what my career was going to be. So I kind of moved from, you know, being a sports guy and, you know, running and jumping and whatnot to moving into um a different trajectory and uh my dad's literally i remember it like it was 15 seconds ago my dad gave me a, a stack of papers and basically told me to look through it and pick out the industry that will still be broken by the time you come out of the back of education um and i i plumbed being a bit greedy i'll be honest with you i kind of narrowed it down to oil and gas because you know gas is not going away anytime soon and i loved the bit of nepotism because my dad was in oil and gas so i thought he might be able to get me a great job didn't go for that one in the end um and um but then digital and the internet was a massive thing and financial services was not going to be going away or fixed anytime soon so i you know i plumbed for moving into digital and um and and financial services and moved from like say doing all the fun sportsy stuff to uh business mathematics uh um uh and i had to catch up which was was interesting so you know doing business doing maths uh and and sort of and doing computing and catching up with uh the year twos when i was doing year one and year two in the same year that was kind of hectic um but really that ethic 
is is kind of what sort of drives out on those things is like it's just work like if you can figure out how to do the work you can figure out how to make anything successful well yeah that's fascinating so how do you think having that sports background has like benefited you in like ways you wouldn't have expected working in like the financial sector massively yeah absolutely massively I, i i really think it's like sports people make great business people because actually particularly team sports people because um you know knowing uh businesses are just people like and actually if you can get to grips with understanding what it is that motivates an individual or actually the ways in which they tick like are they a growth mindset person are they a fixed mindset person do they respond to uh, positive or negative reinforcement do they what is it that they need um you know there's so many great uh, somebody like Nigel Clough uh, you know a, a really amazing football manager Nottingham Forest you know he said it's like when 11 players come off the pitch and you've got beaten 3-0 like every player needs different types of praise you know some will need to get a kick up the arse and say you know you didn't do this or some will get you know need nothing some of them will need you know patting on the back and telling them it was the best game that they've ever played even though you lost and actually I think sports people inherently are are better at that I think the other thing as well is like I mean sports people are just good at getting it wrong and getting back up and getting on with it you know you learn how to I mean when I played basketball I missed a hell of a lot of shots but actually it doesn't make you stop taking shots it doesn't make you uh give up playing it makes you train harder it makes you work better it makes you really analyze what it is that you're doing to be able to back yourself the next time you get that opportunity um the other thing as well as I'd say is like the sports world is uh is very focused on having coaches that are there to ensure that the players get better um businesses are not really that well set up like that you know the the concept of a manager um and the way in which people achieve being a manager is is a by creating empires for themselves you know the 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 sort of adage around people get promoted to the point of incompetence you know happens a lot in businesses um whereas actually i really think the mentality of a manager definitely at 11fs and and it should be the way in every other business is they're there to maximize the efficiencies and performances of their team so you know how do they coach how do they increase the performance how do they unlock the potential within the people that work with them um so for me I, yeah i've i learned i'd say i learned way more about business playing sports than i did through being in businesses so how do you think that has actually like manifested within uh, 11fs in terms of that not being scared to fail or setting up that like a uh, positive coaching environment yeah i mean our, our performance management system is is just different you know like the way in which we've implemented it we've got a a construct we call ada it's about attitude it's about development it's about achievements uh i mean we do that on a weekly basis uh people thank people on a daily basis formally through a tool um you know most most corporate performance management tools are annual you know it's a scratching your head at the end of the year trying to figure out what that person did you know 3 months ago so you can you know tell them what number they are or something um but actually if you're establishing an environment of coaching and learning and development then actually performance management is something that happens you know every time you have a meeting every time you're doing something um so yeah it manifests itself in in sort of really everything that we do uh and actually you know particularly when it comes to uh what is uh culturally and from a behavioral perspective acceptable or not acceptable um i think you know sports teams have a good way of um self regulating those things and actually if you look at different organizations i mean if you go look at what has made somebody like barcelona uh, ridiculously successful over the last 15 years it's actually having really simple value based systems um a friend of mine actually a guy called Damien Hughes has written amazing books about this that uh, your listeners definitely should check out but um but the idea of creating a commitment culture is exactly what Barcelona was based on you know you bring together amazing people but actually nobody's bigger than the club um and actually from 11 FS's perspective you know we've been really clear about 
what our value structure is, what the behaviors are that we accept. Uh, and actually, we are prepared to hire, fire, train and reward on those things. Um, and most organizations, when you look at it, I mean, there's so many bad good or good bad, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, examples of, you know, values in businesses just being posters on a wall or a you know a nice sticker on a laptop or a mug but um if the reality is if you if you won't uh you know reward people for doing these well or fire them for doing them badly then actually it doesn't matter you know at that point your value system is 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 meaningless so um you know we we've stuck to our values we've you know evidenced it we've been really clear about what it is uh, and actually we do that because for us, it's the the environment that creates the most sustainable uh, uh, sort of culture for really driving unparalleled success in, in what we do. Yeah, fascinating insights. I just want to like go back to what you said earlier when you're talking about your, your when you first wanted to set up uh, 11FS, it was about taking on these like billion dollar corporations. So. So after you had that initial idea, what were then your next steps you put into place in order to achieve that and like realize that idea? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the the idea is the idea is not the the thing. I mean, there was no. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to tell you I was like in the shower, like shampooing my beard, and I was like, Do you know, what? I got this great idea for a thing. It just doesn't work like that. And actually. I mean, I, I said to, I remember saying to people that I worked with back in, uh, you know, uh, when I was working at Lloyd's Banking Group or various different places, I'm like, look, at some point, I'm just going to go start my own thing. Because it's like, once you've learned enough around an organization or, or an industry where you can start to see where those opportunities would be, then that sort of leads itself to it. But really, I mean, the, the challenge for me is like, you know, one person can can't do anything really you know so for me it's about what is the what's the infectious narrative that actually not only allows you to convince yourself it's an opportunity but actually it's an opportunity that other people can really buy into i mean if you look at the um you know the people who came in and joined the organization uh, i mean simon left a great job at barclays you know like barclays bank was like running the blockchain r d division doing all sorts of great things you know left that stability uh, you know, I, I think he, I think his mum thought he was crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, and actually, you know, Jason Bates left uh, Monzo, you know, a challenger bank he had founded to come and join 11FS. And, you know, Ross left a really great job at Mapper. So uh, how you build that narrative that shows other people that there is not only an opportunity in this space, but the, the realistic potential to address it. Uh, that was the thing. And it was fun. I mean, the, the beginning was was um, super exciting because everything is opportunity at that side, right? You know, you're sat around a tiny little uh, desk in, uh, you know, a, a Starbucks off of Devonshire Square in London. And it all seems like Pirates of the High Seas, right? But we very quickly moved from, um, you know, hey, these guys are doing a thing to winning work from McKinsey and PwC and and actually, the, I mean, one of the first big things that we won was building a brand new Greenfield Bank for NatWest. Um, and actually, at that point, you've got to kind of almost be careful what you wish for, because, you know, if, uh, when you're, uh, you know, one of the things that I've definitely learned over this four and a half years is, you know, if you're uh, creating a hyperscale organization in terms of the scaling up processes that you're going, you break your own processes like every six months, like you put something in at, at you know, there's five of you, you put in some software and some technology and some process, 50 people, all of that stuff is redundant, like, and 100 people, all of that stuff. And like, by the time you get to uh, 100, you know, uh, Dunbar's law, you know, 150 people, communication needs to change. And at 200 people, things get really great. So, you know, anything you put in place, you've got to be really comfortable that you're putting things in the place that you hope will last forever, but with the reality knowing that you'll be changing this again in six months time. Yeah, I mean, I find that idea of like uh, building uh, an infectious narrative uh, really interesting. So what did you think the infectious narrative was like around um, financial services? Yeah, for, I mean, for us, it was um, that digital banking is only 1% finished. That actually with the uh, dawn of the internet age, 
and that with the financial crisis stoking up the the need in the UK for the regulators and the governments to create a competition mandate and allow new organizations to come into this space that with all of that change and with the promise of what a truly digital future would be that actually the journey for financial services is only just beginning uh, and that it isn't just about having an app it isn't just about selling analog products through digital channels you know it's not about having a fancy website it's about the the potential to fundamentally change the lives of people not only in the uk but but everywhere because actually financial services underpins society in such a major way and actually there are so many people in so many different places uh, and i'm not talking about like you know sub-saharan africa i'm talking about you know there are unbanked people in so many different kind of walks of life in so many different areas you know we talk about uh, underserved or overcharged that uh, just pretty much covers everybody um, so the future of financial services is already here. It just isn't evenly distributed right now. And actually, the the banking experience that Rihanna gets with the 15 people looking at her financial services and her tax efficiency and the investments she should make. I mean, now in a digital age where we trust algorithms to drive cars, then digital should be she should be doing a little bit more in financial services than just a you know a fancy app and a, a neon colored card. So for us that that really breeds to you know if you want to be truly digital if you don't just want to be digitized then actually the opportunities to really revolutionize actually how major financial services organizations work across the planet uh, is really interesting but it's a whole lot of fun as well so what do you think like um was like the spark for this revolution of like digitized finance yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of digitized, we, we make a big distinction. It's like banks were born in, a, in the analog world, right? They were born in branches and paper and people. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't do much dis, you know disservice to that. I mean, they've been insanely successful. Like if you look at I mean, HSBCs and Barclays and Lloyds of the world, they've been insanely successful for, you know, 250, 300 years. So it's like they've had a great run at this thing. Um, but digital is not the same as digitized and actually digitizing is basically taking, you know, let's take those pieces of paper and put them on a website. You know, like it's the reason why everybody's internet banking looks like the paper statements. Cause it was like, we are not imaginative as you know, human beings basically. So they just did what they'd done before. Um, but really when you look at the virtues of digital, when you look at the, the characteristics of industries that have gone through this level of transition or the. Uh, you know, the opportunities that that brings, you know, we're all carrying, you know, the, the, that, the handsets we carry around with us right now are, you know, more powerful than the, the biggest supercomputers even like 10 years ago. Like there's more, there's more processing capability in my iPhone than there was the, the rocket that put people on the moon. You know what I mean? Like that's just insane. So on that basis, like why have we still got dumb financial services products? And actually, why are those products set up in a way that actually penalizes people for using them through punitive charges for overdrafts or lending, rather than actually being subscription-based capability in the way that truly helps people? Um, so from our perspective, that that digital world, you know, we, we sort of use the, uh, the acronym digital riches, you know, a digital, a truly digital service is it's real time, it's intelligent, contextual, human, extendable and social. And actually, if you take that to its extreme with financial services, it's like, OK, if it's real time, then actually it, it knows uh, the time of the day I'm accessing the service, which might be relevant. If I'm trying to do lending at three o'clock in the morning, it's probably a sign of stress, right? Uh, it's intelligent. So it's using all of the data that it has on me both primary and secondary data to give me a better service it's contextual so you know the handset always knows where i am so i the, the risk controls or even the level of service if i'm in an airport do i need uh, travel insurance do i need to exchange money to mean that i'm not going to be being charged for fees when i transact hopefully when we actually get to travel again um but you know if you can do all of these things why are people not doing it um, and the dawn really, you know, the, the point that I was making earlier on, the, 
2008 onwards in the financial crisis, the the FCA, particularly the uh, Financial Conduct Authority, was given a mandate to create competition. You know, before that, really, and actually, if you look at other regulators in other countries, um, before that, the, the the mandate really was to stop big organizations screwing up too badly. Um, and, you know, it's a relative spectrum, you know, too badly is very much a relative thing. If you look at PPI, I mean, it's, what is it, like 64 billion pounds that they've been fined now for mis-selling people insurance. So, you know, I, I think the, the, the mandate to create competition that, you know, people like Harriet Baldwin in the, the government and, uh, uh, you know, definitely uh, people like Andrew Bailey, who was at the, the FCA now at the Bank of England, um, that they did just completely change the landscape. And not just the landscape in the UK, um, but globally, this has rippled out to the changes that have been made now in Hong Kong and Singapore and Dubai and Australia, like everywhere on the planet has very much emulated what um, the UK have done because it's been this epicenter for transformation in financial services um, and ultimately a, uh, a fundamental rethink of what good customer experience actually means. You know, if you look at the the latest polls, the challenger banks are now overtaking the traditional banks. You know, First Direct has been the the absolute um, stalwart of of good customer experience and net promoter score for a decade. Um, it has been at the top of the charts. Now it's Monzo, Starling, and then First Direct. Uh, and actually, the interesting thing is, if you look at the the model, you know, scaling digital. If you look at any hyperscale um, digital business, you know, if you add another million people onto Spotify, we're talking about adding some servers in a cloud-based system to be able to cope with it. If you add, uh, you know, another 10 million customers to First Direct, that's going to be a bloody great big uh, call center. They're going to have to, you know, uh, replicate to, to be able to cope with that demand. And and this is the difference. It's like when you've got your technology, when you've got your operations really set up effectively and you're serving customers predominantly through a digital realm, um, your ability to scale to be a you know truly global presence is is a very impressive. Yeah, no, there's a couple of points there which I found really interesting and um, I'll, I want to pick up on. So the first is being that regulation and that uh, like that competition mandate. So with the pace of innovation uh, being at it is, I mean, it's so high and it's uh, well very beneficial. But how does like regulation keep up with that? And like, what are the problems if they don't? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's sort of an age-old thing. It's um, poacher and the gamekeeper, right? You know, the gamekeeper has to keep uh, one step ahead. You know, the police need to step one, stay one step ahead of criminals, right? Um, and actually, it is a it is a difficult one, but I think it's by, you know, the olden process would be, you know, um, who has the biggest stick wins, right? But that's not a very practical route for for having a particularly collaborative experience of, of sort of working together. So, you know, the the approach that the FCA have taken and the Bank of England, for that matter, as well, in terms of the you know cryptocurrencies and assets and everything that goes with it, um, is by collaboration. You know, it's about working with the community of people who are there trying to improve the end uh, experience from a user's perspective. Um, and actually, if you look at even on the early days, um, you know, uh, fintechs like Oak North, um, a really, really successful lender, um, one of the earliest adopters of fully cloud technology, worked really closely with the, before them. Nobody done it in the UK. Um, they worked hand in hand with the FCA to make sure that the FCA felt comfortable that the right level of controls and processes were being put in place, um, that cloud adoption or cloud technologies could be adopted in a, in a safe and controlled way. Um, and they worked with them to make it happen. Now it's the standard practice. You know, if you're fintech, you're born into, you know, GCP or AWS. But before that, it was unheard of, really. Um, the other things that they've been doing, I mean, they've been very good at, um, and actually this was, um, you know, the, 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 the argument around financial services, it's like, yeah, but it's money. And it's like, mm. um, yeah, f uh, Facebook, you know, move faster, break things. That's great if it's like your pictures of cats and stuff, but like, this is my money. So like, you know, how do you move faster? And like, that's my, that's my old 
white posh man voice just in case anybody was sort of mysterious but it but it's like it's one of those ones where i i just feel the the government didn't take that as a it can't be done it took it as a great so the controls and the processes for regulation need to be there so what was what's another industry that does this um and they looked to the uh medical industry you know obviously if you look at the um the a fast pace of creating in this covid time the fast pace of creating new uh you know astrazeneca and you know um the injections that we need to inoculate us from these these pieces but in, in a more ongoing basis new drugs are coming to market all the time right but actually the trials for these new drugs doesn't wipe out like 20,000 people every time you do it so you know health is more important than money and if you can do controlled deployments and you can do tests and you can do pilots of these things before you let them out into the uh the the general public then actually that's where um you know opportunities to learn from so the fca took and drew very heavily um from the medical industry and actually started to deploy things that they were calling regulatory sandboxes so this is where they work really closely with organizations who have a good idea but and not quite at the point where they they can have full regulatory approval. They also worked with um, organizations to start issuing banking licenses for the first time um, and various different types um, for the first time in absolutely ages, you know, not just for retail banking, but actually, you know, organizations, um, a friend of mine, Nick Ogden, um, set up the first clearing bank for 300 years or something crazy uh, and actually because they start the Bank of England and, and like say the PRA and the FCA started working alongside people to do these things because actually you know as Nick will say it's like there wasn't a good reason not to do this it's just nobody'd come along and ask them if they could um so the opportunities now to to solve these underlying sort of fabric of financial services problems we're able we were able to start picking them off and um you know from those from really the you know the ashes of, of of the financial crisis started to bring new you know challenger banks or new technology providers or new payment providers that actually allows new people to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things in the way that they've never really been able to do it before so you know players like oak north are doing such amazing things but you know revolut starling monzo but uh, in the in the challenger bank space but you know tide in the sme space coconut in the sme space there's just such a um, an abundance now in the UK, particularly of fintechs that are really solving customers' problems, but are scaling to have millions and millions of customers and becoming part of the the new fabric of financial services. Now, now the knock-on effect of that is not just um, you know it's great that Starling's doing great, but the knock-on effect to that and that competition in the existing players is that. RBS, NatWest, HSBC, Barclays, these guys are really having to rethink what it means to serve customers, what it really means to be connected with a community, um, what it really means to deploy technology to solve these problems. Um, and are actually are undergoing, you know, major technological and cultural transformation programs just to be able to keep up with the pace of change. Um, it go back, goes back to my point before about the, you know, this industry is only 1% into the journey that it's on. Uh, that next 99% is going to be coming down the road faster than ever before. Um, and that's super exciting for some. Uh, it's pretty scary for others as well. Yeah, fascinating. And then, well, the second point I wanted to pick up on was, well, you're talking about um, like financial services and fintech and its relationship to London. And then recently there was the uh, Califer report done. So, like after like things like Brexit, um, what is the state like the status of uh, finance, financial services, and London? Is it still like the stronghold of Europe, or how's it developing? Yeah, I mean we we had um, we had a pretty good run, right? We're a we're a tiny little island. You know, if you look at the difference and if you look at all the ingredients, the, the report, I thought, did a really good job, actually. Um, uh, Ron Khalifa did uh, a very good um, job of pulling together all of the different strands of what made 
you know, the UK and London very specifically to be so successful in that period. Uh, you know, it took investment, it took talent, it took policy, it took, uh, you know, the regulatory oversight to do it. Um, and it took a, a, a public that was maybe annoyed enough post financial crisis to seek out real alternatives to the to the high street players right so with all of those things so um you know this tiny little island was able to punch well above its weight in terms of you know if you look at the size of the uk we're like a you know we're florida do you know what i mean like the the us is just so huge but actually it's the you know the ingredients in the right mix which really sort of make it happen so um you know post brexit even into things like ir35 you know the the changes that we're seeing in employment law around contractors you know these things are definitely a hit when it comes to talent in the uk um i mean the the great thing about really what's i mean the maybe the only great thing the only silver lining with what's happened with covid is the reality now is like it doesn't really matter where you are like actually i mean i'm in norwich i've been here for like nearly nearly a year no over a year now since the last time i was actually in the 11fs office because we've not been allowed to go into london right i mean i don't feel any less effective than i, I did before so actually at this stage it doesn't really matter where people are and it doesn't matter if you're in leeds or manchester or cardiff or edinburgh or norfolk or like wherever you want to be um i think actually what people can see now is that it's about people taking responsibility and really being inspired to do the work that they want to do and at the point where you want to be you know if you want to be in cardiff it doesn't really matter i think the the challenge to that is can the uk put in place enough processes to allow talent not to hemorrhage out of the country because um you know what has made us such a magnet and i think this is where london does uh punch above the you know the average for the uk is it is such a multinational, multilingual, you know, it is a, an international place to do business. So, you know, London is unlike uh, anywhere else, I think, in the UK, um, in the same way as like New York is not America and, you know, Hong Kong is not China. You know, it, it, they become a, a hub for trade and industry in the same way as somewhere like Venice was in, you know, the, the 15th mm -hmm. century, you know, it becomes such a, a, a multicultural uh, hub that actually you find the, the fusion of all of those different things is what leads to really interesting innovation. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the, the recommendations um, are, are, are good, but as I sort of said earlier on, um, you know, it's not about what you say or, or what you think it's about what you do. Uh, and actually, I think now seeing the government back this up with, you know, really good action to support uh, scaling organizations in this space or to support, you know, visas for talents to, to continue to, you know, grace these shores. Um, I think all of these things are going to be super, super important to to really just make sure that actually the the great thing that we've done is um, is built upon rather than broken down. So. What then are like the disparities between the US and like Europe right now in in terms of financial services? Yeah, I mean the uh, financial services in in the US is is a really different beast. Um, you know, actually one of the one of the great things about the the European Union uh, that we had was um, this concept of passporting. So if you if you had a regulatory license in one uh, country essentially that would passport you into other countries to allow you to provision accounts and uh, acquire customers. Um, in the US, they don't have those things. So each state is has its own regulation and regulators, um, meaning actually if you want to create a multi-state financial services organization, the, the um, inhibitor for doing that is predominantly regulatory. Uh, they were almost, you know, almost treated completely differently. You know, there is the Fed um, that sits across them from a regulatory perspective. But at the point where you need to needing to start doing, you know, 13 states of regulation and different regulators and, and the processing and operational impact that comes with that, it's a lot to bear. You know, it's why somebody like a, a Wells Fargo has such a, a huge um, 
um, risk and compliance function because they need it just to deal with all the paperwork. Um, so this has been like a weird barrier of entry for organizations kind of getting into this space. Um, the other thing I should say is, I mean, from a from a UK regulatory system, um, it works very differently. You know, one of them is um, is very much about uh, intent. The other one is very much about black and white rules. Um, the black and white rules are in the US. The the sort of intent approach is is what the UK and European regulation is really sort of been based on. Um, I, I'd say, you know, really, despite being, you know, the, the capital of entrepreneurial nature, then the US is very much set up in the favor of big organizations. Like if you're smart enough to figure out the best way of, you know, avoiding tax, then, you know, great you're all in Delaware and suddenly people are kind of, you know, benefiting from that, which is really at odds with, you know, small organizations being able to create differentiation or competition. Um, so it's an interesting one. They have almost infinity investment potential. And actually, if you look at places like Silicon Valley, uh, the amount of investment that's going in there into fintech and all different types of, um, you know, other tech enabled industries, there's a crazy amount of capital. But actually, money isn't everything in that space. You know, I think definitely if you look at would I would I trade twice as much capital for their regulatory system in the UK? No, like the the things that make us unique are uh, not just the ingredients that we have, but the ingredients in the right proportion. Yeah. So uh, just going back onto like what you said and about this idea of um, financial services only being one percent finished. Uh, what do you think of the next developing trends? Because, well, as you said, like it started off with um, on a more consumer basis, like with the Monzos, the Starlings, and now it's like the tides and the coconuts of small, medium uh, entre uh, enterprises. So what are the next uh, trends coming? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier on is like, um, you know, financial services hasn't really progressed that much, right? We've gone from um you know a man in a branch talking to you to no man are talking to you at all and actually self-service in this instance is actually a um a much worse experience because that nice chap in a branch knew everything about financial services and was able to give you advice so suddenly actually people are now having to make their own decisions around financial services stuff uh, you know what they invest in um, and I you know I, I take the broad term of investment this isn't about where am, where am I going to put my millions this is about how am I going to save money for like retirement or how am I going to save for a deposit on a house or you know what is the like uh, is my savings good for like me at this age with these responsibilities like nobody has the faintest idea of these things you know um, really, I think the, the future of financial services is like, nobody cares about financial services. Like people, humans do not, I mean, you might be, me and you might be a little bit weird on this one, Jack, but like, I don't think anybody else w wakes up and is like, you know what? I want to do some banking today. Like I want to do me some payments and like, I'm going to write a check to my nan. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I don't think anybody does that, you know? So financial services is this thing that deserves to be in the back you know it deserves to be in the background of people's lives but in the foreground of that money is important you know money does make the world go round and actually i think it would be a much better experience in the same way as actually we've seen this progression in in other you know industries it's like well you know in cars we started to have like power assisted steering it wasn't so that people couldn't drive or couldn't steer. It was that actually power-assisted steering made it easier. And then we had like, you know, anti-locking brakes. And it wasn't that people didn't have to press, press the foot. It was, and then suddenly like the cars are parking themselves and that's really handy. It's not that you're not gonna be there. And then next thing I know, like Elon Musk comes, around, comes along and like we've got self-driving cars, right? So I, I think the, you know, back to my point earlier on, it's like, Look, we trust algorithms now to ensure that your Tesla doesn't run over a kid at an intersection. Why am I still getting charged for going into my overdraft when you can see that that's going to happen and you have the ability, because it's everything is digital, to avoid that happening because you want to charge me five pounds to do it? Um, so for me, the you know the future is it's self-driving money. Like at the point where actually 
banks start providing services that are on the side of people that actually allows them to use all of that experience in financial services not to uh, set people up with punitive charges but to make them better off on a day-to-day -day basis then for me that will be the future because look I'm willing to pay a subscription for like Spotify and Netflix because of the value it brings to me actually I would be willing to pay for a uh, a service that was a financial service that that really made me better off so yeah building on from that like um i saw some posts on linkedin saying it should be called like tech fin so do you think it's more than a technological like solution as opposed to it being centered around finance yeah, my uh, so our non-executive director Chris Skinner was like is like adamant. He made up that that term tech fin, by the way. So like Chris, if you're listening to this, like I still believe you. Like I believe that you made up that term. But like Ant Financial have picked that up over in in China, and it's like look, we are we are a technology company straying into financial services. Um, and arguably, I mean, I interviewed Patrick Collinson uh, last year, who's the CEO over at Stripe, and he said the same thing. It's like we're a technology company who just so happens to work in financial services, solving payments problems. Um, I think tech, fin, fintech, I think it is a, um, it's a sort of a semantic argument that can go on for a long time. But I think the fundamental here is like, financial services is enabled by technology. Um, you know, digital in financial services is everything. You know, it's no longer a channel of a, you know, every bank had this, you know, channels team that owned mobile, you know, uh, digit, you know, the internet and branch and telephony and digital is not branch. Uh, digital is not what is left when you take out branch, branch and telephony. Digital underpins all of those things, because whether it's the, the system that is surfaced to customers through whatever touch point they want to, it should be the exact same system that underpins those things. So for me, the you know, the argument around which one it is, um, it's both and it's neither at the same time, but digital is fundamentally everything in financial services. So building on from like the digital revolution, like how do you think it will affect the wider economy just beyond the financial aspect? Yeah, I think very significantly because, um, because actually, I mean, the problems that we're facing into is, you know, unemployment at a uh, higher level than ever, right? But actually in a world where you're shutting down branches and more things are moving to digital, then actually does that really create less jobs rather than more jobs because of automation and, and, and what, you know, algorithms and, and artificial intelligence can start to pick up from people. Um, so I think on a, on a jobs level, I think it changes the, the nature of um, what value humans bring to that process. Um, you know, there are going to be a lot less people answering phones in call centers. Uh, there's going to be a lot less people sort of pushing paper around middle management in organizations. Uh, and that's a good thing. So, re, you know, retraining people or uh, changing the nature of the jobs that people are training for way back in education uh, is, is really, really important. You know, particularly where we start seeing, you know, again, if everything is digital and everything is uh, is Internet, then you know computing programming understanding product in its real sense uh, these are skills that are you know increasingly important from a societal perspective um, i think in terms of like actually what it means on a you know a gdp level uh, or even a from a more uh, you know brutal realities day to day societally level um, this should be better for everybody you know essentially what we're seeing is the experience that are, you know, only the wealthy could afford being democratized down to everyday lives. You know, we're seeing retail banking being commoditized down to a point where actually it is the economics that underpin it are uh, better than ever. You know, we're going from it costing a big bank two hundred pounds to run a current account to, you know, Monzo. I think have publicly said it cost them about four pounds. Um, if, a, if an account runs for four pounds, then actually you can afford to uh, include everybody in the products that you're building, the way that you're building them. Uh, and actually that allows you to bank everybody. Um, you know, I think it, again, if you look at places like New York, you know, New York is such a, you know, um, 
uh, again an international you know waiting room of of, of people um but it's something like seven or eight percent of new york are unbanked like just unbanked now that's people who are completely disconnected from the financial system and that can't be good you know that can't be a good thing and that's new york you know if you go to you know rwanda or nigeria it's completely different and then if you go to india it's completely different so you know the revolution around digital um has so many far-flung connotations of it like you say it's not just like a i can split the bill with my mates at the pub it's like actually you know we're talking about you know anti-money laundering capability that's coming in you know it's an industry that only 0.1% of money laundering is being caught in a system. And that's not, you know, uh, it's not as glamorous as it looks like in a, in the Sopranos, you know, like this is like money laundering, this is uh, human trafficking, this is, you know, from a societal level, these are the, like the bad, bad guys, you know. Um, so addressing those things through putting in place digital capability to to drive out uh, the opportunities for those those things um you know materially changes the capability that is in everybody's hands but fundamentally means that you know society improves as every year goes by and we we change some of those me uh, mechanisms and, and mechanics so if you were to boil down like digital finance to like one core message or like a motto what would that be um it's it's interesting it's it's um do you know what the best the best mottos are ones that I think when you say them out loud just sound super stupid, right? Um, but actually, I mean, again, speaking to Patrick Collinson, his whole thing is like just talk to people and do what they need. Um, and actually, I think I think that sounds so obvious when you say it out loud, but actually, big organisations through being wildly successful for such a long period of time have really lost connection and reality of what it is that day-to-day -day human beings need you know if you're the ceo of a big bank and somebody opens up the door for you every time you walk to it and like a nice man in a hat picks you up in a big car like you've got no idea what the reality of day-to-day -day life is like right and actually that disconnection from people like you um uh, is is real you know and actually that that reconnection with customers problems and the relentless pursuit of actually solving those problems uh, is really just what fintechs have been doing you know for me the revolution in, in fintech is uh, is actually showing that if you do what people want and you create services that actually really add value to people it's going to be really successful but as i said it sounds bloody obvious when you say it out loud doesn't it yeah no yeah it does well, I think that's uh, a really good point to finish up on. Um, so thanks, David. Uh, thanks for coming on. I love the like the content you produce with um, 11FS. It's really uh, informative and uh, fascinating. So thanks. Yeah, no worries at all. We, uh, we always try and keep it fun. And uh, yeah, if it can be as entertaining as it is informative, then uh, usually that's where we uh, where we get to. I mean, I don't know if you listened to to the last Fintech Insider, we had Ron Khalifa on from Khalifa Report. And we were chatting about all sorts of crazy stuff, not just the report. We, we try and make it uh, engaging because, I mean, if I don't make it fun for myself, then probably other people aren't going to find it entertaining. Eh? Yeah, no, uh, I listened to that uh, podcast last night. It was a... Uh... I got a few questions down uh, from it so yeah great great stuff good stuff